Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Debbie Dunwoody has held leadership positions in schools for over 35 years. She's been the principal at two independent girls' schools in the glorious metropolis of Melbourne. She was also the inaugural director of a residential campus of one of them at Methodist Ladies College, leading a program focused on experiential education and the outdoors. She's currently the principal at Camberwell Girls Grammar School and she is passionate about developing curious, courageous learners. So much of what she is doing aligns with the thinking of educators all around the world about an education for character, competency and wellness. I can't think of anybody better for us to be talking to about what that looks like in the context of a contemporary girls' school. I'm excited. Let's go. Well, it's great to be with you again, Phil. How is uh, Fitzroy going today? Oh, look, Fitzroy uh, is, is going very nicely. It's, it's a little soggy today, which is, yeah. uh, which is affecting the quality of the tofu, I have to right. say. But, yeah, you know, yeah. we're, 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 it's, it, we'll make it through. You'll make it through. Well, I've got to say, you know, it's interesting. It's the first time it's rained sunshine in a very long time. I'm very surprised about that. We, we, we get very little rain down here, but um, it is what it is. Now, Phil, I'm equally excited as you are that we have Debbie with us today. We've been very fortunate in Series 3 to, to have conversations with a very diverse range of individuals from across the globe. And now we return back to closer to our backyard here in beautiful Melbourne, glorious Melbourne. Debbie, welcome to The Game Changers. Thank you, Adriana. Thank you, Phil. It's a great delight to be here with you. So we're going to launch straight into the very first couple of questions that I have for you. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your own personal story and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I actually never planned to be a teacher, even though I absolutely love school. I trained to be a geologist at uni and uh, just as I was finishing my degree, a family friend said to me, oh, you're going to be a, a teacher, aren't you? And it was just one of those serendipitous moments where I thought, yes, of course I am. And uh, not surprising, I'd led on adventure camps for kids all through my uh, uni years and uh, been a, a girl guide leader with brownies. So it was actually quite an obvious, obvious choice. Um, but I have to say that uh, I think my love of outdoors and the sort of experiences I've had in the outdoors have probably had a lot more effect on the, my formation of a leader than what I originally thought they would uh, as I as I was developing as a young teacher. And I think that's all about the sort of experiences that you have in the outdoors, uh, the challenges, um, that everything that you do is about being in the moment and being surrounded by the natural environment. And, you know, sometimes those challenges are in the activities you do or sometimes they're to do with the weather conditions, but they're actually about how you get through with it with people. And uh, for me, then, I think as an educator, as I, I developed, I've always thought of my edu myself as an educator of young people. And then I 
you know, practice that through science education as, as a secondary aspect of that. For me, I was very fortunate. My first school uh, was a, a great uh, co-educational independence school, uh, Wesley College. I was at the campus that was expanding at the time. And uh, we had lots of, I think we had lots of really interesting experiences developing curriculum for the, the children because um, we didn't have VCE there at the time. And not that I've got anything against VCE, but I think it allows you to really focus your energy on those younger years and, and not be distracted by some of the pressures that come with VCE. So, you know, we developed quite a few really interesting programs, scientists in residence programs, um, you know, engaging women programs. And so that was a great part of my development. And then I think, um, you know, for me, a real piece de resistance and something that I was really proud was to become the inaugural director at MLC Marshmead. And uh, that's their residential site um, out in Malakuta. And, you know, it's, it's a dream in a way where you can set up a program for, for a school and a program where you've got the students for eight weeks at a time. So for me, being out um, in the bush on a farm property, um, I was able to really design with the other staff uh, a program that was based around being there. So, for instance, the students all live in houses. There's a remote area power supply. So part of the curriculum is learning about how your houses work, how do remote area power supplies work, where does your water come from, How's it, how is it treated. Uh, when you know, we went and designed a sort of nature walk, it was about understanding the, the trees and the ecology. And so you actually, everything you're learning, you're, you're actually, um, it has a real application to what you're doing. We work closely, we develop a very close relationship with the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources that was known at the time. We did a lot of projects with them, uh, everything from doing hair tube traps for long-footed potteroos and helping to map out um, their location right through to developing historical walks around parts of the uh, parts of the Malakuta Inlet. So again, we had to understand about the history of the area. And so for me, that time of being really immersed in developing an education that was so relevant to the children being there uh, was a really, really important part of my formative years. And then coming back to Melbourne, probably re-immersed myself back in the main school at Methodist Ladies College, and uh, really worked on probably some more side projects in my leadership roles there, uh, working with other staff to develop a relationship with an Indigenous community in Arnhem Land, working on quite a few sustainability projects. And then, of course, you know, now in my principalship at Campbell Girls. So I think in that, these last, you know, sort of period of time as being principal in Campbell Girls, for me, what's really, I suppose, captured... Um, my commitment is the idea about preparing young people for their future, not the future that we have and we're experiencing, you know, or, or our lives. It's actually about what's the future that they're moving into and how can we best prepare them. Really interesting in listening to your journey today, uh, Debbie, is that it's taking you on a, on a really interesting trajectory across the, not only just education, but other areas. You know, you set out to be something else and education shows you along that particular journey. The other interesting thing I'm hearing uh, really quickly here is such a strong correlation with so much of what schools of the future are advocating for. And that is this really kind of deep diving into the knowledge and skills that are required in the space, but then the transfer of that knowledge and skills in a real world practical application and, and helping young people make sense of their learning in this real world way. 
Can you talk a little bit to our listeners then following that train of thinking around, you just touched on there briefly about the purpose of school, you know, uh, you maybe want to expand on that a little bit for today's world yeah. and, you know, tomorrow's young people who are going to inherit it. Yes. Look, look, I think for me, it's really important that one of the purposes is about helping to enable and develop a passion for learning because for all of us, um, we, we need to be lifelong learners and we see as young people move into the future and the range of different jobs that they're going to have across different industries, that notion of continuing to learn is mm -hmm. really important. Now, I know some people would argue about how schools might, you know, sort of impact that passion for learning, but I still think it's something that we have to really ensure that we're always working towards and always aspiring for. I think for me, the other thing is about an equipment of skills, um, and it might be skills or a toolkit or mindset for young people to really help them to make contributions. And, you know, one of the things at Camberwell Girls, we talk a lot about, you know, we want to enable um, our students to be able to help create a more just and sustainable world. And so mm -hmm. for us, um, you know, that notion of, we're all here to contribute to something bigger than ourselves. And that notion of service is really important. You know, for us as a school, we're ce celebrating our centenary this year. Um, I thought we were celebrating lots of activities in our centenary, but there's nothing to say you can't celebrate it over two years, and that's, that's the tack we're taking. Um, but, you know, one of the important things as we think about our school is our school motto, Utilis in Ministerium, means useful in service. And that notion of serving others has been a key part of who we are for a long period of time. And so that's something that we hold true and I hold true personally to what an education in preparing someone for the future is all about. Debbie, that's, uh, it's, it's such a broad approach. I want to take you in a slightly different direction from that, if I can. Camel Girls Grammar is, is an Anglican school. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in the notion of the role of spiritual development in an education in our program for students pathway to excellence we talk about the importance of having a spiritual practice as being something which enables us to take ourselves out of where we are right now and wonder whether there is something beyond our immediate situation uh, you know it's very human to wonder if we're alone in the universe what role do you think schools can and should play in helping children to build that sense of our place in the universe? I mean, I think schools um, can play a really important role. And I, you know, I personally believe they should. Uh, that may not be a belief held by, by everyone. Um, but, you know, that, that notion um, that we are part of a bigger picture, that notion that we are all loved and that we all have gifts that, um, you know, we can develop and that we can um, really use to make the world a better place. I think the notion of our spirituality and our programs that, in, that are really directed towards spirituality really help young people to start to think about those bigger things. I think the notion, you know, of worship too and, and the role that worship plays in education um, is, is really important. It, it's times when communities come together, you know, that notion of, of how you can spend time together in a way thinking about bigger things and thinking about your role in what's happening around you and how you can make a difference is important too. So, you know, I, I think that um, we have very important 
place, you know, roles to play. Um, for us, part of our Anglican heritage is very much one about service. So again, that, that really fits um, so well within, you know, our ethos and what we do. Uh, it's, 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 it's refreshing to hear that sort of perspective around the, the linking of ethos to a set of values and that notion of service in there. Um, you've got an enterprise and life skills program that functions at Campbell Girls at the moment. So let's, let's bring it down from contemplating the universal to something very, very tangible. Can you give us, uh, our listeners a little bit of an insight as to how this enterprise and life skills program works, why you've got it running, what's it doing for the girls? So in terms of problem solving, we're really keen to look at how we can solve problems that might have greater social benefit. It's not exclusively how, how we have our innovation programs working, but it's, it's sort of like a goal that we aim towards. So we teach the sort of invention process um, with our girls even formally in the curriculum from year seven. Some of our younger girls uh, look at problem solving at an, an earlier stage. But in terms of an invention process, we really start formalising that in the, in the girls' education at Year 7 through the Girls' Invent program. Uh, we've had a number, of, a number of girls who have continued on with some of their projects after that program. Uh, they've worked with people in industry to try and develop their projects on a, on a larger scale. But that notion of, of learning about design thinking is really important. It's terrific to hear the link between the universal, which is the ethos and the values, and then bring it back to the practicality of problem solving and social benefits and so on. One of the fundamentals, I think, of girls' schooling throughout the world today is that notion of empowering young women, of bringing about uh, a fairer and juster world for women and about creating a space in which possibility Reigns. Can you share with our audience the work you've done in this space of empowering young women? What advice do you have for leaders of schools with reference to this whole issue of gender equity? Phil, I think girls' schools actually play a really important role in this space because certainly in my experience as an educator working in girls' education for quite a period of time and also as a mother of daughters, I think um, you see at quite young ages that girls will, will start to make decisions about what they think they can or can't do. And, uh, you know, that notion of bringing in an unconscious bias is, um, is, is really quite um, a significant um, issue, I think, sometimes for young girls. So, so what we do in our education is to ensure that our girls are having opportunities to engage in so many different things, whether it's STEM opportunities, robotics opportunities, being the tech crews. It's really about enabling girls to have opportunities in every part of their education through the curricular and co-curricular activities. And so it becomes more a notion of what you choose to do because you want to rather than what you think you should do. As a part of that, I think role modelling is really important too. And uh, older girls, I mean, we, we, we have a lot of programs where older girls will mentor younger girls. And so once again, they're passing on those skills and just the knowledge that you can do these sorts of things. I, th I think particularly about, say, the tech crews that we have and, and the stage managers and, and the students that are, you know, our high-level robotics coaches, they're actually engaging with younger students to help build those capacities in them too. 
As part of our centenary, we've also launched this year our Inspiring Women of Camberwell Girls. And so our old grammarians we're starting to bring into this space too. I believe very strongly in that notion of trying to show young women what they can do really helps them to see the possibilities for themselves. And I think that notion of having a voice is important. Um, one of the things that we worked on quite early on in the piece was making sure that all of our girls were running assemblies and that they were being a part of, I said to the staff, you know, if there's any, any activity we've got at the school um, that a girl can introduce or a girl can actually run or conduct or organise or manage, we should be there supporting them to do that. It's not the teacher's role to be the person out the front all the time. So I think that notion of showing and engaging and role modelling and then having mentors is really important because, you know, we want our women to have, the, have their voice, um, not only at school, but as they leave further out from school and go into the workplace and, and have a voice in the world. I think that that voice of women is really, really important. It's really exciting, I think, right now across the globe, although we have an enormous way to go, of course, I'll say that first, but it's really exciting that uh, we have such powerful female role models right now. We've got leaders of countries that are definitely showing the way to young women in particular about, and men, what leadership really looks like. Uh, and we also have such dynamic young women like Malalia and like Greta Thunberg, who, who, are, who are great advocates for this, this kind of responsible citizenship that you're, even, you're agitating for here today. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to extend this question a little bit further because I, it's powerful what I'm hearing about what Camberwell Girls Grammar is doing to empower these young women around voice and agency. And I love that notion of the peer modelling that goes on, you know, so that this becomes a really sustainable culture where young girls become young women and understand that they can be anything and as they should, right? I'm interested to know what advice would you have for leaders of single-sex boys' schools right now? Because, you know, we've got to do this together. Yeah. And there is still so much of gender stereotyping that impacts young men. Uh, particularly around a man code that we kind of really want to dismantle in many ways uh, for us of those who have been in boys' schools in recent times. Do you have any advice for people in single-sex boys' schools about how we could be doing this differently? Yeah, look, I, I, I suspect there's already a lot being done, Adriana. I mean, there's fantastic um, male champions of women too. And, uh, you know, we need to be working together. In fact, that's the best outcome that we have when we do work together. But I think, you know, it's so important to call out behaviour when it's not appropriate and when it's not right and to not let things go or not let things slide. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can do. Our school was actually a leading school in the Respectful Relationships Initiative too. And we found that really valuable working with a number of the boys' schools in the area as well. And uh, it, it wasn't even doing, th doing things together with the students, but it was actually about you know, the discussions that we had with the staff and, and you know, some of the things that, that they may have found um, in their school in terms of even wellbeing programs and, and how, do you, how do you roll out some of the respectful relationship initiatives in the school. So I think it's about working together. I think it's about, you know, the male champions who work with us and the males, you know, really having a lot of confidence in what they're doing is important because that's about the role modelling. But it's also about calling out behaviour uh, when it's not right. 
Thank you very much. Uh, earlier on, you touched upon this notion of young women becoming almost solution architects. Uh, and it's something that you're really cultivating there in that kind of broader aspiration of being responsible citizens. Can you talk a little bit, a, a bit further about how the framework of design thinking, which I love, by the way, I'm a little biased being a visual arts teacher, considering that's been the framework I've used for 26 years. Um, uh, so Phil, Phil knows how biased I am in, in that particular space. Uh, so I just want to, I'm interested in to, to, to push that a little bit further to know how you actually then use a framework like that, a pedagogical framework like that, then to actually foster the creativity in the young women, to, to foster their natural curiosity, to challenge them and stretch them from where they are, and then also to develop you know, their character where that they feel that they are confident young women that can take their place in society and, and really make a strong contribution to, to the world. Yeah, look, there's some um, really interesting opportunities that are available, you know, for young people at the moment. So, for instance, there's an AI for good competition, artificial intelligence for good competition. And, you know, that's about really designing solutions that will really improve the lives of others. So for us, we've been building, um, we've been designing our learning around offering what we call sort of some seasonal programs, maybe a couple of days of conference, um, particularly say year nine, where we present a whole lot of uh, speakers and opportunities for girls to learn more about AI. And then we actually, again, take them through the process of design thinking and help them to sort of ideate and to really come up with some solutions for, for some problems that they can then, if they want to, um, enter into the AI for good competition. But it's really about having that notion of understanding what's AI and what can it be used for. So um, interestingly, last year we ran that conference. Um, this year, of course, the conference was due in the COVID-19 time. And so we were able to run it as what we called AI in the sky for good competition. Wow. And yep. so we ran totally um, a remote conference. We, you know, had girls um, working in different teams um, that we'd organised through Zoom, uh, but still running the same program, but helping them to, you know, see through a, a final product. So we find often by um, connecting to different um, organisations and competitions, that can be a way of helping girls see some pathways through to how can you design solutions for problems that are real. Talking of solving problems that are real, Debbie, it sounds so rich and glorious, that life that you're all living there at Campbell World Girls Grammar. <laughs> I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet that if I walked in there and asked your teachers how they're doing, most of them would tell me that they're busy. Because that's what we do in schools. We tell each other that we're busy a lot. How do we prepare young teachers for this future of busyness where they come to see it as opportunity rather than stress? The life of a teacher, I think, has always been very busy, but there's no doubt uh, there's so many more compliance requirements um, and, and different pressures on teachers these days. Look, I think one of the things, one of the things that I've really focused on is really designing an environment that really helps to enable teachers to feel excited about the real possibilities in education. So that can be as simple as uh, in our key staff working environments located near the staff room, uh, we have 
visuals everywhere of the projects that we're working on. We don't do things behind closed doors. So as we're working on ideas, um, it's all up there for everyone to see, for anyone to come and talk to different staff who are working on it about. We actually um, highlight on our notice boards what teams are working on what projects so that as people come in and they're motivated and interested, they know who to connect to. And it's not sort of the secret stuff behind the door. For us as a school, we really do um, work very collaboratively. We encourage new ideas, but we also don't worry about sometimes when things don't work quite right. So I'm the sort of person that I'll even call out when I make mistakes. Um, I've got no problems in doing that. In fact, I, I would much rather do that because it means that people will come and talk more about the sort of work that they want to do and not feel that you have to be perfect or you have to do everything properly all the time. Uh, for me, it's really about us all getting very real about this, this business of education and how can we be the best designers of learning that we can and we're not going to get it right every single time. Um, we're going to make mistakes, but, uh, you know, in the whole, if we're moving in the right direction, then that's what's most important. Uh, Debbie, hearing you talk about that sort of continuous unlearning and learning process is, uh, is fabulous there as well as failure. I'm going to put you on the spot now with one of my favourite questions, which is to say, is there something that you've done that you wouldn't do again? Um. Yeah, look, look, I think it's, it's interesting because I'm always the sort of person, if, if someone comes up with an idea, I'm usually, yes, let's do it. And, you know, when I mean let, let's do it, I mean like we've done it already, you know, let, let's do it now, let's, let's not stop. And I think that, um, I think probably the biggest thing I've learned is sometimes you just have to hold a little bit and bring others along on the journey a little bit more too. Um, because I think one of the really important things about as we move to the future is, you know, I want people to come along on the journey. You know, I want, I want staff to develop into the best teachers they can be. And I want them to feel like they own the journey that we're on too. So uh, I think probably my biggest thing that I've had to learn is not go so fast sometimes because you've got to just judge, judge the crowd a little bit better. It's really refreshing to sit here and listen to a school leader that operates from the construct of permission. I say that because I, I've been fortunate in my educational career to have two dynamic principals, uh, one at Carolyn Chisholm Catholic College and then most recently my time at Marston College under Mark Murphy and prior to that was Michael Quinn at Carolyn Chisholm, but both very different leaders with very different approaches, but both also operate from this construct of permission and, and distributed leadership was actually lived. It wasn't just spoken about, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't necessarily get a sense though, Deb, talking to colleagues in education that that is the norm. How, how can we support people in significant positions of leadership in education to be comfortable to play in that restlessness, to be comfortable to play in, yes, we have the responsibility of compliance. Yes, we have the responsibility of risk mitigation and child safety. They're a given. But how do we not make them the prevailing part of the conversation? How do we make the permission and this notion of yes, the more constant? For me, the way that you do it is that you know the people that you work with. You know, it's about working alongside them. It's about, you know, you're designing together, you're creating together. Uh, that's how you do it because... 
you know, the thing that I think is exciting is when you discover the amazing ideas that other people have and you let go of that whole notion of that you have to know it all or you have to be the key guru because no one can be that. But, you know, when you can really get excited about what others are thinking and you can start to say, hey, hang on a minute, um, you know, I can bring in this aspect of it or let's connect with so-and-so who can develop that further. You know, that's, that's what real learning and that's what real education and that's what real co-designing is about. So you've got to, you've got to know your people and you've got to be yeah. willing to work alongside them and, and to embrace and celebrate what they can bring to the table. You know, uh, what I'm hearing you say there to us then, Debbie, is that we have to be open to the possibility of the other. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be more complicated than that. And I love this notion of co-creation. It's a very entrepreneurial kind of approach to producing a school, uh, getting all the voices around the table, the students, the parents, the staff, and including them in, in the possibility of what learning could look like uh, and, and constructing meaning looks like. Mm -hmm. So that leads me then to, to this question relating to the enterprise and life skills program that you have at Camberwell Girls. Can you share a little bit of an insight with our listeners exactly what that program looks like, what year levels it's targeted at, and yeah. so far, what's its level of success? So, look, for us, it really starts with, excuse me, the whole notion of problem solving. And that even starts down in the junior school. So when we're looking at even in our inquiry units, you know, we might be looking at um, how can they solve a design problem for an animal enclosure or, you know, something that they might be really interested in. And, you know, we can bring the mathematics into that. We can bring the construction we designed a makerspace about four years ago and it's one of the most busiest spaces in the whole school because people come in and construct and build prototypes and test things out and, uh, you know, they love that space because you can be quite free to build and create different things. Um, as we move through to the senior school, though, we're quite intentional about teaching about design thinking and teaching about invention. Ultimately, we want to get to a stage where we're teaching much more about social entrepreneurship. But, you know, often, often with the younger kids, you've got to start with what's a problem that, you know, really annoys them or annoys one of their friends or a family member. And uh, so we take them through a process and we've, we've um, partnered with a, um, a group called Girls Invent. Mark Glazebrook has worked with us for a number of years. And uh, we've been quite intentional about embedding that program into our Year 7 seven course so that every student gets the opportunity to learn about the invention process and some of our girls have had great success there they've gone on to work with people in industry uh, to try and um, miniaturize some of their prototypes um, they've worked with you know some girls have worked with IP lawyers uh, you know trying to look at patents over uh, some of their products and it's it's not important it's not so much important that they get to have a final product although that'd be great but knowing that notion of as you're trying to solve a problem, it's probably not going to be the first time that you do it, that you solve it. In fact, you're probably going to come back and do multiple iterations. Um, you're going to come back, you're going to refine, you're going to make another prototype, you're going to test it. So, so it's really important that they learn that process. How can you apply new knowledge to what you've already been doing? From year seven, there's many other opportunities for girls to be involved in that. They'll work through um, design your own enterprise uh, competitions. Uh, we've got girls that are, are designing things through the AI for good competition. So at several stages along the way, 
we keep reinforcing this idea of design thinking and the design thinking process in whatever we're doing. And that's extending out to a range of different subject areas too. In our core curriculum, um, for instance, you know, our, our year 10 geography, they, they, they look at how do you develop green spaces? And, you know, we've got this incredible paved area in our school that I, I basically call the abandoned wasteland. And, you know, I'm waiting for the design that I want, but it's about what are some real problems and then, What's the thinking that you apply to come up with solutions? So talking of all that amazing design thinking stuff, which just sounds so, it sounds fabulous, you know, you know, exactly the sort of thing you'd want your daughter or your son doing, for that matter, at, at school. How are the staff going with that, in, particularly in the environment of, the, of what we're learning around COVID? Yeah. How are staff applying that type of thinking to the way in which you're constructing learning? Mm-hmm. Well, it's probably been our biggest challenge yet, you'd have to say. Um, I, think what, I think what's really interesting is um, we've really come up with a, a framework that we've, we're sort of still in the stage of we're doing our final testing, um, which we're calling learning by design. And uh, so because we've been working with a number of different, different um, curriculum areas, we really, I suppose, put in a number, number of parameters um, that we think are really important about good learning. And it's about things like, you know, good learning should add value to the learner. You should be able to use that learning to create something new. Um, good learning should help activate well-being in young people. Uh, you know, good learning should do things like help you resolve some tensions and dilemmas. These are some of the ideas that have come out of the OECD paper, um, Education 2030, that was released a couple of years ago. Good learning should really develop, you know, grit, that, that notion of perseverance in, in, um, in the learners. Uh, it should be about sustainability as well, and it should be about growth. So there's a number of factors that, that we look at when we design learning. And so as we, we started to evolve into this sort of COVID remote learning model, we started applying some of those design principles more intentionally to some of our, our programs. And really, I suppose some of the key things we found at the beginning was we had to pare back first. We had to really define what was important in what we were trying to do in our learning programs. Debbie, can, Debbie, can I just cut in for a moment? How did your teachers feel about that process of pairing back? Because, you know, we teachers, we love to shove, shove content in, don't we? And we find it very difficult to let go. Yeah. Look, I think for some of it, it was a bit challenging at first. And we had some that hung on for longer than others. Um, but the reality is when you're in a remote learning mode, you know, for your own well-being, you can't do it all. So for some, it took them a little bit longer than others, but it was about the constant messaging and it was about the constant guidance in how you should be looking at your programs and what you should be doing to pair back, um, you know, really, I suppose, bringing teams together so that um, it was much more collaborative, some of the, some of the work that the teachers were doing. But, but people did it. They did it because they could see that, that um, some could see, firstly, that it was absolutely the way to go. Others had to go through a little bit more trial and error first. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, people came to the same place. One of the things about COVID-19 was one of the things I like about, about the experience of going into remote learning is it brought well-being to the fore again. Because mm-hmm. I think that's something that can get lost 
in a very busy curriculum, very busy learning programs. So what's for me been the most impressive part of following the journey of Camberwell Girls Grammar, particularly during COVID-19, is exactly what you've just touched upon there. And that's this notion of the wellbeing being at the centre and everything being wrapped around it. So I want to explore uh, Wellbeing Wednesday in a moment. The other thing that's really most impressive, impressed me has been how congruent these values that you are and dispositions that you are agitating for right now and sharing with our listeners, how congruent that is with your actual messaging that goes out to the community, uh, particularly through, through your social media channels. You know, being a visual arts, a visual communication and design teacher, I always talk to the students about the notion of less is more, you know, uh, you know a great architect's saying of less is more because good human-centred design is really understanding their inherent need. So, we, we, you know, we go back to the Maslow-type hierarchy of need. And then once we really understand that, then we can respond accordingly to that particular need. So instead of filling things with everything that we think they need, we pair it back and we get to the, to the real essence of it. And from, from an outsider looking in, what I was able to witness, particularly around the Wellbeing Wednesday construct that you, you guys beautifully developed, was a real clear emphasis on the young girl's emotional competency and fostering that and, and their holistic development during a time of great uncertainty and during a time of that no doubt created a lot of fear and anxiety for everyone in our community. Can you talk a little bit about how going forward, the construct of a wellbeing Wednesday is going to be more pronounced? I, I actually think it's, it starts with retaining that notion of keeping paired back what you do in terms of your teaching and learning programs. Um, because if you fill things up again, then there's not going to be that space. I mean, our Wellbeing Wednesday really just helped to re-emphasise the important things about your sleep and your exercise and, you know, what families can do together and all of those sorts of things. I mean, this time during remote learning has been so important for so many families. They've reconnected on very different levels. And that's one thing in our community we're trying to promote for them to retain some of that. I mean, I can't think how awful it would be for some of the girls to come back to school and all of a sudden, you know, those things they did in families together are no longer there, um, that everyone goes back to life as normal. Well, no, this has actually got to be a new normal. So part of it is about encouraging what should happen at home to happen at home as well. But at school, um, it's, it's interesting because um, some of the things that we've been thinking a little bit about and not yet had the chance um, to talk more fully with the staff, but the notion of our days at school that are very, very busy through lunchtime practices and performances before school, after school. And I think one of the things that... Um, we've got to be caught up in, in the world is that uh, children have to do everything. And mm. so more co-curricular activities that you can do, the more, you know, additional help that you get in lunch times and all those sorts of things that that's really important. Whereas I think we're actually redefining um, what, what is important. And it's probably more along doing fewer things, but doing them better and doing them to greater depth depth and doing them with greater commitment. And so that's certainly something that we'll be pushing a little bit more for too. But I also think in terms of even things like the curriculum and the structure of the timetable, there will be opportunities for us um, to talk a lot further about that as staff. 
we've constructed school days where we have, in addition to our timetables, we have often one-off excursions that go out here and there and different groups are going and different people are in and out of the school all the time. But maybe we should be thinking again that less is more but uh, some of the seasonal learning that I, I mentioned before with our AI for Good conference, mm-hmm. you know, maybe our, our timetable our time should have more days where there might be a couple of days in a row, but you're, you're actually investigating something to a deeper level. You, don't, you yeah. don't go out on the multitude of excursions. You choose one aspect of you know, a learning project and you do, you do that. So I think there's a notion that we should be probably calming things down a little bit and doing fewer things, but doing them better. You know, it's really exciting because uh, I, I've often spoken to the director of Money School in Perth, Lacey Filipich, Filipich I've probably pronounced her surname incorrectly, and she, she's coined a phrase, time rich, because mm-hmm. we often talk about being time poor. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose in, in really busy schools, in schools that, that have these rich co-curricular programs that start at 7.30, finish at 5 o'clock, then there's performances in the evening on top of the academic program, on top of the wellbeing program, on top of the faith context. It, it's a very full thing. Saturday sport, even sometimes um, schools like the school that I came from, their musical rehearsals with the, the sister school was done on a Sunday to fit everything in. So it was like this seven day a week. And of course, young people and parents were complaining that they were time poor. But I think we need to flip it, don't we? We need to flip it. And that's what I'm hearing you say. And that is we need to flip it to this notion of being time rich. Less is more. But how can we do it in a way that it's going to provide richer meaning to our, our lives going forward? Yeah, because Adriana, I, I think, you know, the real opportunities in, in education are how do we connect more with the business world and how yeah. do we connect, you know, um, with people that can actually help mentor our students as they are engaging in deeper learning projects. And if we don't take away some of that busyness, then we're not really going to have the opportunity to do that because, because there's no time in the day. So, you know, we've, we've got to structure things to, I think, larger blocks of time um, that enable much better conversations and much better relationships. Debbie, it's just... just... You know, just even listening to the last few minutes of this, it's just been so exciting hearing what's going on and hearing what and hearing what's going on in your mind as well too about where you <laughs> want to go and how you go forward. Um, I love the idea of an experienced principal looking at a timetable and going, do you know what, we need to do that differently. I love the idea of thinking about different programs. I love the idea about questioning busyness and saying let's let's dig deeper and and let's put choice at the heart. Debbie Dunwoody, it's been an absolute privilege talking with you today. You are a genuine future builder and you are an inspiration to those who know you and hopefully now for our listeners all over the world, you will be too. So thank you for everything you're doing and uh, we can't wait to talk to you again sometime in the future. Phil, Adriano, thank you very much. And, you know, thank you for all the work that you're doing in really bringing some interesting people to the table that we can all have the chance to learn from and hopefully connect with. So thank you. Thank you very much, Debbie. You take care. And it's been an absolute delight. I I want a job at Camberwell Girls Grammar now. (laughs) (laughs) The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you're hearing.